Good morning. Uh, the reading today is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Good morning. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was in college, uh, I had to actually memorize the first chapter of John for a worship service that I was a part of, and I was pretty swept up in the poetry of John chapter 1. I still am. That's part of the reason why we're studying John chapter 1 here this Advent. It's something I've always wanted to do because I love this passage so much. It's so beautiful, the poetry of it. So I began to memorize it, and I still uh, know it by memory today. But I always got a little bit annoyed when we get to verse 6. In the midst of this high poetry about word and light and creation and incarnation, there's this just disjointed mention of, of John the Baptist. There was a man whose name was John. It feels like a really rude interruption in this otherwise really beautiful chapter. There was a man named John. And I always wanted to skip this part. I think I even asked the director, could, should we just skip these couple verses and go to the word made flesh? It sounds like that might actually go a little bit better. Uh, I mean, what is John the Baptist really even doing in this narrative anyways? As we continue to study the prologue of John, the Gospel of John, first chapter, it's okay to admit that John the Baptist is a bit of an unwelcome interruption in the Advent story. It's a little disjointed. It's a little strange. And it's not just John's gospel that brings John the Baptist to the forefront as part of this birth narrative. All four of the gospel writers, anytime all four of the gospel writers do something, we should pay attention, by the way, all four of the gospel writers mention John the Baptist at the beginning of their gospels. Matthew and Luke, they're the ones with the traditional birth narratives. They mention John the Baptist, and he's prominent in their tellings of the story. And Mark's gospel, which doesn't have a birth narrative at all, opens by talking about this man in the wilderness, John the Baptist, making a way for the Lord. And John the Baptist's message is not exactly one that fits well or is pleasant in the midst of our Advent celebration. Fair warning. In Matthew chapter 3, we're introduced to John the Baptist with these words. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, which was read for us in our call to worship today. 
A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. So John the Baptist does not come into our Advent celebration saying, peace on earth and goodwill towards all humankind. Instead, we hear him say, repent, for the kingdom has come near. Now the word repent doesn't feel real natural in Advent. I don't know if any of your Christmas cards look like this this year. (laughs) Has anybody ever seen a repent Christmas card? This is not our actual Christmas card, by the way, but I am trying to convince Katie that it should be. Uh, This is just not a word that we're used to seeing in the season. How about an ornament on your tree or in the midst of your wreath? How many of you have a repent ornament somewhere on your tree? I don't think so. I don't think many of us have that. As Fleming Rutledge says it, every year I used to buy Advent calendars for my children with little cute doors that open and show little cute pictures. I've yet to find an Advent calendar that has a picture of John the Baptist. We really don't know exactly what to do with him. He doesn't fit into anything. And yet, here he is in the opening verses of all of our Gospels. John, in his Gospel, is is talking about hope and light and word, and here is what is an interruption, a message of repentance. But rather than dismiss this as just a nuisance in our Christmas celebration, someone that we don't know what to do with, what if we took a closer look at John the Baptist and we asked, is God intending that John the Baptist be a necessary, holy interruption in the midst of our merrymaking? What if this is an interruption that we're being called to fully embrace? Repentance is a scary word for most of us, We conjure up images of uh, hellfire and brimstone preachers, of having maybe to stand up in front of a bunch of people and list all of our sins, the many things that we've done wrong. And truth be told, repentance is, is rarely a welcome thought as it so regularly associates with feelings of guilt and shame, of not doing enough, of not measuring up. So John the Baptist's blunt message, with nary a mention of forgiveness or grace in any way, is even on the best of occasions really difficult for us to hear and hard for us to swallow. But it's even harder to swallow in the Advent season, a season where we're supposed to be merry and joyful and it's supposed to be peace on earth. But I want to suggest that repentance is not actually so dissonant with Christmas, not so dissonant with Advent. After all, repentance is not about saying I'm sorry or feeling bad about ourselves. It's rather a reorientation of our lives, a change of perspective, a change of direction, a commitment to turn and live differently. John the Baptist is that baby in utero, in, in, in the story that leaps in Elizabeth's womb, sensing his cousin, who's also in utero nearby, the one who, prepared, the one who he's preparing the way for, Jesus Christ. He's, he's called a forerunner in the Synoptic Gospels. But how does he prepare the way for Jesus? Well, he prepared by living in the desert, wearing camel fur, eating locusts, bugs, and preaching a single-minded message, same sermon, over and over and over again, one of repentance. Uh, He's what we might call today a tough hang, not the coolest guy in the gospel, probably not the person you'd want to hang out with if you could choose. 
But there is a method to his eccentricity. You see, John the Baptist was purposefully disassociating himself from a corrupt and compromised temple system in Jerusalem by moving to the stark desert and reorienting his life towards the Messiah, getting on his knees in the dirt and in the brackish baptismal waters and saying, God, would you move me closer to your heart so that at your coming, the coming of this Messiah, I'll be alert and I'll be ready and I'll be prepared to greet you with my whole self. Repentance is an awareness of our own sin, surely. The ways in which we, we fail Jesus, our Lord, through our actions, our darkness, our sins. But in that awareness, then, turning from that sin and brokenness and, and reorienting to Jesus. That's actually the, the meaning of this word repentance, is to, is to turn, to reorient. And it's clear to me that without repentance... We might be celebrating a lot of things this season, and many of them would be good, but we're not true Advent people, not in the fullest sense. But here's the thing. This is not one of those sermons where I'm going to bash your Christmas traditions and call you all commercialism mongers and decry what Christmas has become. I love Christmas. I think there is holiness to be found even in the most absurd parts of our Christmas celebrations in 2018. I'm not asking you to give up what you love about this season. I just want you to add upon it. (laughs) I want wonder and repentance. I want Hallmark movies and spiritual practices. I want the blaring Christmas radio station, and I want the still small voice. That's the fullness of Advent, and it's all important. So I want to tell you the presence of John the Baptist in John's gospel should motivate us to add a healthy dose of repentance to words like peace and hope and love and wonder and joy. John's choice of words to describe John the Baptist leads us to this truth. Let's look at our text again for today. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. You might have noticed something. John's gospel writer does not call John a forerunner like the other gospels do. He doesn't even call John John the Baptist, does he? He has a different descriptor for John altogether. He calls him the witness. This word martyrion in the the original language is used several times in this passage. Both our English words for for witness and testify come from the same root word there. John the gospel writer didn't see John's main job as being a baptizer or even being a forerunner to prepare the way for Jesus. But he sees John's primary first job is to be a witness. John the testifier. Now witness and, and testimony are concepts that we commonly use in legal language. So if that's where your mind goes, that's okay, because I actually think that's part of the language that's built into Scripture here. In a courtroom, witnesses help to establish the guilt or innocence by their testimony. Their purpose is to witness that which of, of, of which they have personal knowledge so that a judge or a jury can rightly determine what's true, what's right. And it's really hard to overstate the importance of this kind of language, witness, testimony, in John's gospel. He's going to come back to it almost every chapter over and over again. 
But this focus on witness in John's gospel and the way in which John the Baptist advances that theme is kind of twofold. First, which is interesting, on the one hand, John the gospel writer is establishing that the gospel that he's recording here, the truth about Jesus Christ, and in particular his life, his death, his ministry, his resurrection, is indeed true. He's creating credible testimony from many voices, of which John the Baptist is the first throughout his entire gospel, so that at the end of, when you read the end of this gospel, he wants the readers to go, that was reliable, that was true because of the witness that came through there. He insists throughout his gospel that there is credible evidence based on testimony to see the gospel of Jesus as being really true. And it's witness that establishes this truth. But there's another angle here as well that I think is really important that John the Apostle is is communicating for you and me today beyond the fact that just the gospel that he's writing is true. He's saying something deeper about witness for us. Because witness makes us commit. When we're a witness to something, we're committing. Once John the Baptist had witnessed the coming of the Messiah and the truth of the gospel, he was committed, wasn't he? I mean, he is the picture of commitment. Deep in the desert, only has one sermon that he keeps pulling out of his pocket over and over again. He was single-minded, and he was committed. He was not the light himself, in John's words, but he came to testify to the light. And why does he do this? Verse 7 tells us. He came to testify so that all might believe through him, through Jesus, through the light. John the Baptist's job was to bring people to a point of decision, to bring them to witness as well. So it's the same for us today. If we go to the witness box, to the witness stand, to testify on behalf of something, we are committed to it. We are no longer neutral. We're saying, this is my testimony. The witness of John the Baptist comes as an invitation to us as well to join as a witness of Christ too, and so commit ourselves. No more neutrality. No more sitting on the sidelines. Are we committed? A few weeks ago, a dear friend of mine called and asked if I wanted to join him uh, this last week on a silent retreat for a couple days, uh, a a few hours away in Michigan. I love quiet. I'm really drawn to silence. And I said yes, even though I was really thinking, even as I was saying yes, this might not be the ideal time for me to try and get away for a couple days. I mean, it's Advent. There's so much to do here at church. Even in my own house, I was like, I don't even know if we're going to have a tree by then or any lights going to be up. What do we have to do? i got to work on my repent Christmas card. Uh, <laughs> this just feels, this invitation to, to retreat feels like an interruption. But I went anyways. It was excellent, as you could probably guess. The center is, is totally silent except for 20 minutes of prayer in the morning and, and one hour with a spiritual director on one day. Otherwise, it's complete and total silence even as you're eating together. I'm increasingly convinced that silence and solitude is core to spiritual formation for me, and I actually think it's core for you too if you have the courage to go and find it. In the quiet of those days, there was rest and there was reading and there was prayer, but most of all there was, I could feel my mind coming into a single-mindedness, centering into a single-mindedness. I was recommitting myself yet again (laughs) 
to Jesus. I was gaining a fresh perspective on my work in our church. I had the bandwidth to hear him speaking to me in a fresh way. I was repenting of my scattered way of life, my sin, my selfishness. I was reorienting my life. I was turning my life around to Jesus yet again. And all of this centered me back on the reality that I am God's child and the best way that I can spend each and every day of my life is to follow Jesus with every part of who I am. So obviously when you come back from that, it's overwhelming, right? You come back to the noise and the emails and Chicago traffic and the calendar that's way too full. And I found myself saying, thank you, Lord, for this interruption. Thank you for this Advent interruption. Thank you for the time of repentance and returning and self-examination and brutal honesty about my own life. Because that interruption absolutely strengthens my Advent journey, not diminishing it in any way. And so it is with John. So in light of John the Baptist's interruption in our passage here, I'd like to just suggest three ways in which we can welcome or should welcome this interruption in our Advent celebration this year. First reason is this. John forces us to testify that what we're celebrating here, all the stuff that we're doing, is actually true to us in our hearts. We put a fair amount of effort in this church on making sure that Jesus is at the center of our Advent and Christmas celebrations, small, big, whatever they are. But, but John pushes it even further. His place in the narrative puts us squarely on the witness stand. Do you really believe this stuff about Jesus? Does it matter to you? Is this mostly decoration? Is it kind of window dressing? Or is this the celebration of, of the coming of the most important event in human history that not only changed human history, but changed me and changed you? John the Baptist's brashness, his, his single-mindedness focuses us on not being neutral about Jesus, whom we celebrate. He forces us to testify. And for me, this is a welcome interruption because I don't really want to put that much effort into things in this season that don't have Jesus at the center of them, that don't have deep meaning. So John the Baptist and a, and a neutral Christmas experience are like oil and water, and I'm really thankful for that. The second thing is, John invites us to interrupt our lives by taking the call to repentance seriously. So John's witness to the light of Jesus is coupled with his insistence on repentance, the reorientation of our lives to Jesus. Perhaps you don't have time or capacity to get away for a couple days in another state, um, but, but I know that if you put intentionality into it, even in the next 15 days, you can create a quiet, unencumbered space, a literal tiny wilderness of your own where you can get to that place of single-mindedness and reorientation towards God that solitude brings. John the Baptist did that purposefully. He lived in a quiet, ascetic, um, uh, sparse place in order to stay focused on his mission. So his interruption reminds us, too, to find a quiet place where we can reorient our lives, where we can do that good, important work of repentance. That place might be in your own house at 5 a.m. in the morning. That might be the quietest opportunity you have. Or maybe it's the prayer chapel here behind me, which you're welcome to join 
and be a part of. Or maybe it's a parked car during your lunch break. But you need it. Not solely for your benefit or for your sanity, but so that you can reorient your life towards Jesus again, or perhaps for the very first time. Third, John gives us a model for what a witnessing life looks like. We're going to study John the Baptist further in this series, actually right after Christmas. As we continue through John 1, he appears again. So you're going to get a fuller sense of this strange and wonderful biblical figure. But we know from the Gospels that John's witness ultimately cost him his life. It cost him his head at the hands of Herod. Might not want to talk a lot about beheading while we've got the greenery up in this beautiful space here. But if we miss the call to witness then we're missing the heart of Advent altogether. The Advent story ought to motivate us to live a life of witness, a single-minded devotion to Jesus and a desire to call others to belief in him as well. John's interruption is not a nuisance. I think it's a dangling carrot. It's, It's motivation for the journey of following Jesus. So my friends, with these suggestions in mind, my encouragement this morning is to welcome the interruption. Embrace John's message as being essential, as essential as the carols we sing and the decorations we put up and the nativity that we're drawn to. John offers a full vision of this season, and I don't want for any of us to miss it. So in closing, I'd like to recite our passage from today without hesitation and without interruption. In the beginning was... God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing that has been made has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light to all His name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light. He came to testify to the light. The true light. The light that illumines all things for all people was coming in to the world. Amen. I'm going to invite us to response this morning by way of prayer. And I'm going to give you the gift of the potential for a little wilderness, quiet solitude, even in this place, for just a minute. Something I like to do regularly for myself and for all of us. Let's come away with Jesus. Let's hear his call to reorient our lives towards him. Let's pray.